Curiously enough, when I was at Warren's church and uh, I did quite an extensive presentation there with video and graphs and charts and so forth for the time that I had, um, I had played a video of pastors that were within the PCA that had fully embraced critical theory and were teaching it from their pulpits, were teaching it from their sessions, and uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, I, I just didn't make the connection, one of the pastors that I had showed the video of was a PCA church which was just up the street from Warren's church in Memphis that was fully teaching, fully bathed in critical theory. They had already given up the true light. And that's the thing that I, I think a lot of us don't realize is when we, when we think about what's happening, and I know much of our context in many cases is within the Southern Baptist Convention or within the, the Baptist channel of faith, if you will, is that we don't realize how much and where this is spreading, where it's going, where it's been woven into the fabric of the every day, of the every Sunday, of the every Sunday school, of even the Awana classes that this is happening. We don't realize that it's in just about every, now there are exceptions, but in parachurch ministries, it is so fully embedded within these organizations. And you take a look at their recommended resources, and you can almost for certain see the same thing in each one of them. You'll see either something from Jamar Tis Tisby. You'll see uh, something from Patricia Hill Collins. You'll see something, of course, from Robin D'Angelo. These are fully Christian churches, evangelical churches. Folks that, and I'll, I'll just say straight out, uh, like Crew, which you used to know as Campus Crusade for Christ. It's Campus Crusade for intersectionality now. It's so far gone, it's going to be hard to bring it back. And I know there's a lot of people who say, well, I, I wish I could say something, but, oh no, you need to say something now. But I could lose my, no, it's time to stand up. Well, I have to do this the right way. I'm sorry, but what is the right way? When you see what's happening all across our nation right now, when you see what's happening in your streets, would it not be right to love thy neighbor to stand now? There is no more time to wait on this. And if we, and I'll say more about this in my presentation, but if we call ourselves reformed, if we talk about the courage, and Warren just referred to Tyndale, others to Luther, to Calvin. If we look at that as our heritage, and if that's where we point to to say, we have to stand strong like these men, and we with passion, that we have this passion for ministry to proclaim those truths of the reformers, of those that counted the cost, but yet we are unwilling to do so, because of what it will cost us, that we need to be strategic? Well, I think your strategies might be a little bit based upon your flesh, about what you need to make sure you look like on the other side of this thing, after the dust settles. And I'd say, brothers, that's not something that Luther really worried about. He was not a perfect man, of course. That's not really something that Jan Hus worried about. That's not something that Calvin was very concerned about. When we look at Patrick Hamilton, when we look at those covenanters that were burned at the grass market in Scotland, in Edinburgh, because they would not move from the truth. I'd ask you, where's your conviction in things? Because what's under attack right now is the truth. Well, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Please turn in your Bibles or on your automatons to John 
chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us the special light of revelation that you gave your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that we did not earn, that we did not deserve, but you gave it to us freely, but not without sacrifice. Lord, thank you that we do not have to earn that salvation or work for that salvation. But Lord, I pray that we will work to preserve it. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Here in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, it is clearly revealed that Jesus is the Word, the Logos. Jesus, the Logos, is the true light from which truth flows. And this light, the light of truth, the light of hope, the light that would dispel the darkness, had come into the world. The light of Christ illuminates our path, bringing visibility to our journey. The Lord continues this theme again, and if you would turn to John chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 9 and 10. John 11, verses 9 and 10. That's a beautiful sound, isn't it? The sound of the pages of the Bible turning. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the light and is the truth. He is the true light, by not walking in and through him, and through him also through his word, we are bound to stumble in darkness. The darkness in these analogies indicates the absence of truth, the absence of light, because the light is truth. The light will help you to see things quite clearly. The darkness, the absence of truth, will obscure your ability to see, to move about without surety. Jesus reiterates this analogy in John chapter 9. If you could turn there, just a page or so back. John chapter 9. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, 
Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It was the preaching of those verses that led me to start Sovereign Nations. I had been talking to many of you even in this room about what was coming, but wasn't sure how we would be able to handle this. I wasn't sure who would actually stand with me. But I was in London, sitting in an old, old church, in a very uncomfortable seat. Uh, Kathy Kang was with me. I believe Stuart Adams was with me. And I was terribly convicted. And we walked out and I said, we need to do something about this. We need to make sure that the light continues. That although the darkness could be coming, although this could be something that would be prohibitive for us to be able to share the gospel in the future, we must do everything that we can. Come to every man that we can that cares about truth and try to bring people together. Thankfully, that's something I think we've been able to do. But brothers and sisters, it's not about us just containing the truth in my organization or your organization or your ministry or anything else. It's about lighting people aflame with the truth. Because unfortunately, the flames might be coming for us sometime soon. And maybe not literally, possibly. But just as the executioner's blade would fall on the heads of those or the funeral pyres would, would be put together outside of Oxford, now we just have deplatforming, right? <laughs> That's not so painful. But the idea is to silence you, to make sure that the truth does not continue. Well, George Orwell stated this in another context. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those that speak it. And whether we admit it or not, we are the agents of our epoch of time. What also must be understood is that there is nothing new under the sun, as we read this morning in Ecclesiastes. For we live in an age where our personal volition our freedom of conscience, our ability to reason, our pursuit of knowledge, our right to worship, or not, as we individually see fit, our cognitive liberties are, to a fault, honestly being taken for granted. Incrementally, we have lost the ability to freely speak, to freely think, to be able to head down the path of knowledge, to discover. As many of you know, in the course of human history, and specifically in the history of Western civilization, this theme has time and time again been repeated by those who claim to want to usher in the new utopia. But in fact, they have always wanted to bring in fascistic totalitarianism. The light is truth, objective truth. And the light of truth is so precious, so valuable, and it was so valuable to early believers that they believed that the truth of the gospel and the light that emanated from the truth was worth their lives, their physical existence here on earth. They weren't living for the here and now. They were living for eternity. And the light has to be proclaimed, no matter what the cost to Jew or Greek, free or slave, not for their physical well-being, because following the light had a deadly cost. 
It was not the physical safety that was the primary concern of early believers. The primary concern was the propagation of the truth. Objective, real truth with a standard. And that standard was the very creator by which all things were made. That is the synchronistic plan that works. That is reality that we should be pursuing together. That is the reality that we can have a society together, even with those that are not in full agreement with us. But if we go back to the first, second century, during this time, the faithful, those who wished to share the light and the logos, the word, hurriedly shared the word with whomever they could. When you're talking about the time that was creating the formation of what we would now know as the New Testament, when it was not legal to be a believer, when this was thought of as a cult, you would quickly copy down whatever you could in fragments, in different pages, and trying to bind them together on leather skins. We call this the minority family of manuscripts today. When we go to see these things, let's see, in the Chester BD Museum in Dublin, or the Rylands fragment, P52, P45, P45, the probably the best extant copy, earliest extant copy of the, of the Gospel of Mark, P66. This is what we call them today. Copying and recopying of the logos, the word, the truth, objective truth on pressed leaves, parchment, and animal skin, sharing the word as secretly as possible. Because being found with the light, the logos, the word, the truth, could bring serious consequences, not just for you, but for your family. And after the first century enduring hardships, after this being an issue of persecution, because, you know, here's the thing. Sometimes Christianity grows the strongest in the cauldron of persecution. You get to see who the real believers are, who the real image bearers are. We are all image bearers, yes, but not of general revelation necessarily, but of special revelation. Those who contain the imputation of the Holy Spirit, those that are justified. Not those that are wolves in sheep's clothing, and my friend Nick reminded us the other day too, they remember those wolves in sheep's clothing? If you're wearing the sheep's skin, and fur and head, you had to kill a sheep to get it. Let's not forget that. But in the first century going into the second century, after enduring hardships, a man from Syria who carried the light of truth ended up replacing a bishop that was killed in Lyon, France, in Gaul. That man's name was Irenaeus. And I have been to his gravesite. I was there this past fall. Uh, Kathy Kang and I were on a hunt. And even though we had talked to all the folks that were there in Lyon, no one had really any real idea where it was. Till we finally found a person that goes, ah, I know where Irenaeus's grave is, yes. But we have to get permission from the church that's above it to be able to let us in the gated area and so forth. It's like, oh, okay, well, let's see if we can do that. So in the pouring rain, trying to run around, find somebody, somebody, we finally got the gate open, and we walked down the tunnel into the tomb. And it was quite expansive. There's quite a bit of art on the walls and so forth from the second, third, and fourth centuries. And Irenaeus' tomb was desecrated by the Huguenots. Because people at the time, back in the 16th and 17th century, it was a place that everyone would go. He was the patron saint of the area. So they ransacked the tomb, took his bones, and played games with his skull in the streets. 
Irenaeus' primary opponent in the second century, in the struggle to preserve the light, was a man pushing Gnostic heresy by the name of Valentinus. Irenaeus was responsible for against heresies, his primary apologetic against the Gnostics, refuting them at every turn. Irenaeus is a biblical apologist in the purest sense. The Gnostic Christians had misrepresented the Logos, the Bible, and misconstrued the doctrines of faith and misled the church by infusing the pure word of God with the perverted philosophies of Greek mythology. In Against Heresies, Irenaeus responded by highlighting the disparity between their false arguments and the plain reading of Scripture. Irenaeus preserved the faith and kept the light of truth lit against a cheap imitation of light. And through the Diocletian persecution and through the trials and tribulations of sharing the light, the gospel continued and flourished even during persecution. But there came a time, not so long after three centuries of persecution, when the light was incorporated with the state. But even this did not come without a fight. It still took men taking a stand against everyone to proclaim the truth, to be willing to take punishment for the light, for the truth, to be thrown out, to be told that, you know what? Tom Askell, when you release, release that trailer, you have to understand the whole world's against you. You know what, Phil Johnson, John MacArthur, if you're doing this, you've you got to remember the whole world's against you. You know what, Josh, Josh Bice, if you come out with that statement, you've got to understand, <laughs> you don't got enough big names on there, everybody's going to be against you. That's going to be the end of your career. But these men especially one in particular. In the fourth century, the whole world's going to be against you. Why even make this fight? And to stand strong and say, if that is the case, Athanasius, if that is the case, then Athanasius, as he would say, Athanasius contramundum. If you are saying that the whole world is against me, then guess what? Then I guess I'm against the world. And it was that kind of stand with courage that eventually won the day. And you will see this kind of stand winning again and again throughout history because this is the actual normal Christian life. It is not a life of ease. It is not a life of worldly acceptance. The normal Christian life is one that requires you to stand at times against the world. And many times that is standing against others that maybe you had considered brothers in the faith that are doing more than just being with the world. They're actually influencing it. You stand for the truth. You stand against subjective error. Do not capitulate to it. But because of the stand Athanasius and others took, the light was preserved. Men like Augustine caused that light to shine bright, beautifully bright, and now, with safety guaranteed, many took the light for granted. And then, yes, that too. <laughs> and then, after they had taken those stands, but the monarchical episcopate basically stated, the new state religion basically stated, that's okay, guys. We've got it from here. You can trust us. We'll protect you. Same thing that you heard in China, if you were a Christian, with the three-self church. And a long road of gradualistic syncretism began throughout what was then the Holy Roman Empire. And the light still continued, and it was still visible, but... As the light was now legal, and now the Logos did not carry the weight of punishment of possessing the word, the truth was no longer an issue, right? Truth was now reportedly contained in a place. 
And now, as opposed to what happened in the first and second and third centuries, where you're trying to copy the word wherever, whenever you can, on whatever device you can, whether it be leaves or animal skins, whatever it could be, on another work of something else, laying another skin on top of it, but yet trying to hide it from those that are coming to persecute you. It was done quickly. Now, with the state taking over, copying the word was now a slow and beautiful process. And the truth, the light, the logos needed to be handled only by the professional class, the state church. And the faithful went through their faithful obligations, doing so as they were told by the state church, trusting the church with the light and trusting the state and the church for guidance. That would prove, ladies and gentlemen, I think as we all know, would be a mistake. The light was obscured. The light was still in the Logos, and the Logos was in the light. Yes, it was. But now, it had protected status for your safety. Because we don't want you to misinterpret anything. As a matter of fact, what we need to do is we need to make sure that we have the same language used all over. So if any of us come to hear what you're doing, we know that you're doing it the right way. Don't worry about the vernacular. But the light was only seen dimly through the layers of priestly oversight and ritualistic obligations. The common man, the common woman, did not have access to the light themselves. And eventually, darkness began to reign. The light in the Logos was replaced by repetitive ritual and ecclesial dispensaries. The word was in the language of the church, Latin. And if you lived in Germania or Britain or Gaul or anywhere else, it is most likely that you would never hear the Bible proclaimed clearly in your native tongue. So, if you were part of the church, do what you're told to do. And believe what you are told to believe. Darkness had settled over the land. Now, let's jump forward in time about a thousand years or so. There are a thousand years that the light was obscured. The light was rediscovered. And what brought the light? was the light itself, the word of God. The truth was revealed. Yes, no doubt there were cracks of light that could be seen making it out behind that which contained the light for so many years, just behind the treasury of merit, let's say. But the light was obscured for so long that it was now revealed through the light of the standard of truth, the word. And men and women began to share this light Faithfully. And again, when they shared the truth, they had to stand again against the entire world. The proclamation of those that enjoyed the radical concept of what is now known as the Protestant Reformation was this post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. And many of those that embraced the light of the word of God were lit aflame themselves, sometimes literally, for the right to proclaim the gospel, for the simple right to point to the light, to declare apart from the monarchical episcopate that truth, that salvation was revealed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed by the scriptures, the light alone. And they faced certain persecution for doing so. They didn't do this to make sure they were in with the right crowd, to make sure that they had career advancement. When Luther was in Worms, by the way, that's 500 years ago once we get to 2021 in April. Exactly 500 years. When Luther was in Worms and declared, here I stand. I can do no other. He was basically placing a death sentence on his head. Luther couldn't just walk out of the door of the cathedral and join the local Baptist church or the Presbyterian church. No, he had to become 
Junker George in Heidenwartburg Castle for a number of years until the governmental situation changed in Thuringia. But he had to stand. He had to take a stand against the whole world. And others, seeing his courage, took that same stand as well. Forsaking their family, forsaking their future careers for the truth. So faced with certain career suicide and certain persecution, what did those men say at the top of their lungs? I mean, don't you understand that all of the strength that is the fortress of the Holy Roman Church and its magistrates, those that are aligned politically with the church, all of that is going to be against you. And I need you to think about this because this is the same, possibly, as it is today. How did the reformers respond to this? This might be real familiar to you. Luther would respond saying, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe does seek to work his woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. And on earth is not his equal. But did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word can fell him. That word, that truth, that light, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. But God's truth will abide us still, for his kingdom is forever. They did not capitulate, brothers. They did not shrink to the pressure of the world. They did not live their lives by reading the Bible in one hand and the National Review in the other. The light, the truth, was their refuge. And there was no safe place to be apart from the light after the centuries of the monarchical episcopate ensuring that their subjects live in ignorance under the subjective understanding of revealed objective truth. The light of truth broke through the darkness into the vernacular language. To the vernacular language of the common people. Because now, at the same time, in Providence was the invention of the printing press. And now you could distribute the word everywhere. And now you know why there was an Inquisition. And today, that's why we're all facing the Thinkquisition. The light had started to shine. No longer did men and women remain enslaved to being told what to believe or what to do, how to conduct themselves from magisterial authorities. They had the truth themselves and now had the ability to hold those who ruled over them responsible, responsible 
to an agreed standard. By what standard? All throughout Europe, and soon America, the light flourished, and not without some extreme sacrifice. But the truth was freeing those held captive spiritually, cognitively, and even physically, liberating them from the great lie. Then the explosion of knowledge began. There are benefits to this happening. For even general folks, general revelation all over the world, the advancements that were made. For the light of knowledge was the beginning to shine everywhere. That truth is there, and we could be allowed to pursue it. The desire to know how to read became preeminent because now every man, every woman, every child could read for themselves, could understand for themselves what standard they were being told to live by. As the ability to write, to communicate, was necessitated throughout what we now know as Western civilization, the great leaps of knowledge were becoming commonplace. This is when the great expansion of knowledge began. And in the years to come, the sciences expanded and were often fortified by the ever-sharpening resolve to get it right. Testable, knowable truth. Make no mistake, the age of reason did have its genesis after this pursuit. The common man, pulled from the centuries of ignorance, found himself in the path to creating a new society with equality, liberty, common sense, Thomas Paine, and volitional responsibility as its strength and core. Whether in an ecclesial sense or in the realm of scientific progress, the light of objective truth was beginning to burn bright through the years of revolution. Through many hardships and strife, the light continued to find its way through the cracks and crevices of ideological darkness. Keeping the flame of light lit, though, has not always been easy. We've been talking about what's happening with Marxism. I have the unenviable opportunity to be where great darkness has reigned, whether in China, and it's getting darker, or probably the worst of all for me, both in concentration camps in Germany, or awful, horrible things that you could never imagine happening, and this was not that long ago. Possibly the worst for my wife and I was when we were in Phnom Penh in Cambodia at the killing fields. And seeing the faces, all the pictures that the government would take, seeing the declaration on the board as you came into the prison camp, how you were not to speak, how you were to act, how you were to react, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. And believe me, this has been something that's been happening for years. Remember, we talked about the French Revolution the other day. Remember, no longer madame, mademoiselle, monsieur, no longer that, citizen. Remember what happened in Russia. They overthrew the czar, killed his family. Proletariat, comrade. And in each one of these cases, the French Revolution with the Jacobins, they declared it year zero, time to start all over again. Get rid of the suppression. We're going to start new, create a new calendar. Can't even use those words anymore. Same thing that Paul Pot did. Remember where Paul Pot was educated? In the Sorbonne, in Paris. And if you ever go to Paris with me, I can show you. It's the most amazing thing. At the top of the hill is where they have Rousseau buried. 
And there were some good ideas from Rousseau, but a lot of bad ideas started from Rousseau. The idea of collective liberty, which is where we're heading now. And at the very bottom of the hill, Notre Dame. You know what's in between? The Sarbonne. And this is where Calvin was for many years, being educated. And in trouble quite a bit there as well. That's also where Jacques Derrida was. That's also where many other others that would be the beginning of postmodernism came from. And that's where Paul Pot was from. Marxism was cool back then. But we have come through an age of great progress. The miracles of communication, the advancements in diagnoses and medicine, a flourishing like no age before us. But maybe think back just a few years, guys. Maybe, just maybe, we have taken the light for granted. Maybe it was too easy. We just couldn't imagine these things happening. In an age where more citizens in the West die from obesity than from hunger, you know, maybe we've taken the light for granted. In a time where education is available to nearly everyone who desires it, where communication across nations is as simple as communication across the kitchen table, quite possibly we have taken the light for granted. In an epoch of time where nearly every ounce of knowledge of almost any field is available to the average person in Memphis, Tennessee... <laughs> as it is available to a student in Cambridge or Oxford. Our sciencia, our knowledge, our sciences have been a great achievement and are open to all. All you gotta do is go on the internet or go on YouTube while it's still there. So maybe, just maybe, we have taken the light for granted. You see, the light of knowledge in an age of amazement, even greater than the Belle Epoque, relied on the pursuit by the common man of objective truth. We call it the correspondence theory of understanding and knowing truth. Epistemology, to know why, to know what the evidence is of a truth claim. Truth corresponds to the reality that reveals it to be true. So this is how nearly everything is measured in our world. A medical diagnosis, a grade in a classroom, a bank account, a trial by jury, a sermon from the Bible. Truth must correspond to reality for something to be true. Well, this is good science. This is provable science. This is a good exegetical methodology of hermeneutics that we just heard about from Tom Buck. This is good accounting. If two plus two equals five, why can't two plus two equal one? You don't want that as an accountant. You don't want your bank using that methodology. If understanding epistemology and truth, knowable objective truth is reality, then that leads to a good society. But there is a problem with this. Not for you and me, but for those that desire to be our masters. George Orwell said the following, if you want to have a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. For those who believe that they know better, that they know better than the common man who today has the very same equal access to the light of knowledge, that they do, if your desire is to control, if your desire is submission, if your desire is to overcome the great equal sharing and leveling of the playing field that open access to the light of true knowledge brings, then obviously the last thing that you want is for man to understand and possess equal knowledge across social strata. But the genie, for lack of a better term, has been out of the bottle. So now it needs to get put back in. So for every man, Every woman and every child has had equal access to the light of knowledge, to the pathways of truth afforded to them through, the co through cognitive liberty. How? If you wanted to control the huddled masses, if you wanted to put the genie back in the bottle, how would you try to reclaim some sense of subjugation? Well, you would introduce ideas that you would claim to be true 
that are completely irrational, utterly insane, and downright mythological, and claim that they are true, or at least that they are morally true, under your new mythological moral code. You see, we need to get past what is true objectively and get to what truth works. You can thank Ed Stetzer for that quote. You would insist that others understand these falsifiable but feel-good half-truths as fertile fallacies. Fertile fallacies always contain a kernel of truth, but at the core are meant to spurn reflexive actions as desired by those that seek societal or political change. So here is the subtle but destructive twist to destroy the concept of objective truth. Radical subjectivism. Dispense with objective truth claims and end the correspondence theory of truth. Say instead that people are capable of acquiring knowledge, but that they can never have enough knowledge to allow them to base all their decisions on objective knowledge. So in the minds of those that wish to destroy the correspondence theory of truth, it follows that if a piece of knowledge has proved useful, then the accusation will come. That what is known to be truth is exploited. It must be seen as oppressive. And then state what we know to be absolutely true no longer applies. So if your ultimate desire is to control, you claim that the truth is a fallacy. And what is actually a fallacy or a false claim now becomes the truth. So now, we live in an upside down world. Everything is fake made only true by the constant repetitive reflexive feedback loops that are part of our day. So in an upside-down world, everything that is objectively true can be considered a fallacy simply because accepted norms, scientific normalcy, societal normalcy, legislative normalcy, we call this precedence, are now just as fallacious as those ideas and concepts that fail the scientific method and fail the test of correspondence. Now, everything is a fallacy, and the truth is not knowable. There is no objective truth in their new world. The correspondence methodology of discerning truth in their eyes has to be dead. So now, pick your fallacy and make it a truth according to what you wish to politically accomplish. Embrace the new power relationships of Foucault and spice them with the grammatological deconstruction of Derrida. In fact, deconstruct everything that holds our society together. Blow up and tear down the edifices of our society with critical race theory, and then glue it back together again, upside down, with intersectionality. As we said the other day, you need to look up postmodern architecture on Google. Then go to images and just see what pops up. That's intersectionality. That's our new society. That's our new church. That is our new educational edifices. You see, the fertile fallacies are fertile. Fertile fallacies are lies that have legs. Fertile fallacies grow roots. Fertile fallacies rely on resentment, resentment, as Nietzsche would call it, because there wasn't a word in German to really express the deep bitterness that needed to exist for these things to happen, for these things to change, to look at the crowds and introduce madness into crowds, to get crowds to be those that insist on fallacious changes. And once fertile fallacies begin to grow roots, they become more and more difficult to remove. For you, once they have made their way into your organization, let's say into your company, into your seminary, even into your knitting group, into your political party, into your church, The end goal of this insanity, something to remember, is not critical theory. Critical theory is a means to an end. And the end is, for the church, 
technocratic Christianity that will fit in a technocratic world. The intersectional church in the intersectional world. And to say technocratic, I mean those that are the experts in each one of their own perspectives, in each one of their own epistemological standpoints. It is not enough to have your pastor who has spent decades studying the original languages, studying the exegetical understanding of Scripture, honing himself on proper hermeneutics. Not your pastor who is loyal to the confessions of the faith. No, now, in this new age, in this new intersectional age, in this new subjective age, you need experts to tell you their perspective. So now in the intersectional technocratic framework of the new woke church, let's just call it kind of like an intersectional coalition, to minister to a Latino, you must learn from a Latino, I'm half Latino, who has experienced oppression by oppression by whiteness and learn from their truth so you can understand how to minister to them. To minister to an African-American, you must learn from an African-American who has experienced oppression by whiteness and learn from their truth. To minister to women, you must learn from a woman who has experienced oppression by white male misogyny and learn from their truth. To minister to an Asian, you must learn from an Asian who has experienced oppression from white male colonization and learn from their truth. To minister to a homosexual, you must learn from a former homosexual who still identifies as someone struggling with homosexuality and who has experienced oppression from cisgendered Christian homophobia and learn from their truth. And then you can minister to them. This fertile fallacy will begin to extinguish the light of true knowledge and our methods that lead to the discovery of real truth, objective truth, the truth that can, that can stand by a standard. Whiteness, maleness, normal male-female relations are the oppressor in their world, in upside-down world, in fake world. And thus the understanding that we have of Christianity as we know it as we have understood it, is oppressive. And what is oppressive in the new world must be changed. You see, maybe you didn't know this, but you need a new intersectional faith to fit into the new intersectional world an intersectional faith that has a ready-made replacement for everything, for original sin, male cisgendered whiteness, for salvation or born again, woke, for sanctification, you need to become an ally, an anti-racist, which is not anti-racist at all. In their terminology, you must, you must discriminate against white ethnicities. For the canon of Scripture, you have the woke authors and their works, D'Angelo, Collins, Kendi, Tisby, Mason. And while you had our reformer that we were just speaking about, Martin Luther, you of course now have Martin Luther King. For redemption in the woke church, we have justification and the great exchange by and initiated by the Lord for the intersectionalists. This will never be accomplished. It's impossible. It insists that the light of knowledge is darkness. It is oppressive. And in doing so, their goal is that the light, the light that so many have sacrificed for, that so many have stood for, is extinguished. William Butler Yeats best stated it when he wrote the following from a secular perspective. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And everywhere, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. After light, darkness. 
And this is what is being taught throughout our seminaries, our denominations, our parachurch ministries in the SBC, the PCA, the OPC, EV Free. It's nearly everywhere. This is a different religion. And what is incredible is that so many are sitting on the sidelines not willing to speak up about this insanity. And if this is the case, please, I beg of you, please, don't call yourself reformed. Sadly, you need a lot of reforming. So, for those of you in ministry, for those of you in medical research and higher education in the sciences, philosophy, legislation, business, affinity groups, the media, for those of you in the pastorate, for those of you that are the common men and women that are in pews wondering what in the world is going on in the altar before me. Let me give you one piece of advice that you could take from this conference for the sake of your children and their children. You must rage against the dying of the light. And by this, I don't mean an uncontrolled anger. I mean a focused, consistent, determined, strategic proclaiming of the truth against the lies that are being dispensed in our faith. You must be relentless because his truth is relentless for the sake of our Savior, for the sake of your wife, for the sake of your children, for the sake of your church, for the sake of our nation. I say all the following without one ounce of hyperbole at this point. This is as big as the ideological and theological battle of the Reformation. The battle for epistemology is about to begin. And upon this battle depends nothing less than the survival of Christianity and Western civilization as we know it. The battle for the Christian faith is once again back to a state of normalcy. The normal Christian life means that you will need to take a stand. You will not capitulate. Your will will not shrink back in fear. You will not give one thought about career advancement. You will not care about what others say about you. You will care about standing for the truth. You will care about keeping the light shining for generations to come. Because no matter if it is your entire denomination against you, your church against you, no matter if your family and friends are against you, remember... A mighty fortress is our God, and we, dear brothers, must take our stand now. And if you don't, please again, please don't call yourself reformed. And I heard many of you say, even this conference, man, I wish RC were still around to help us through this. Brothers, the one who helped and gave courage to R.C., gave courage to R.C. to lose so many of his friends throughout the ECT controversy, is still here, and his imputed righteousness, righteousness, I hope, is in you. What do you think? Do you, do you think that his entire ministry was for a popular mean? What's wrong with you people? Well, if so, let it keep on playing. And as a matter of fact, let it play morning, noon, and night because what is wrong with you people? Maybe not those in this room, but others. Was it for the sake of a coffee mug with that or a t-shirt? No, it was to show us how to stand and why to stand, where to stand, where to fight. And upon this fight depends our own lives and purposes and for the long continuity of our educational institutions and our own cognitive liberty and for the light of the gospel to continue. The bottom-up frenzy of mass hysteria is around us at all times now. It is reflexive. Those that are forwarding radical subjectivism know that they will have to break us into all of our individual tents, continue to divide us, ensure that we are turned against one another so that they may prosper in their new mythological foolishness. But if we can stand up to them, 
all men and women may be free to know the truth, to prosper intellectually, and the life and true progress of the world and its people may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the entirety of our civilization, including all that we have already known and cared for, all that you've worked for possibly your entire life, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the false lights of a new perverted science. There are many amongst us who are sitting on the sidelines. If you're watching, it's not, now's the time to take a stand. Maybe you're not willing to do what is necessary to cleanse the temple of the false wizards of, yoke, of woke. There are even some men that were with us in Dallas, unfortunately, that will not stand. I need you to remember, a mighty fortress is our God. The other day, I said that those leaders in the PC and the SBC, SBC were paper tigers. I said that from the pulpit here. Daryl Bernard Harrison quickly corrected me and said, no, they're not paper tigers. They're just paper. <laughs> they're not even tigers. And something else, uh, do take a moment to consider. Those woke leaders in our evangelical churches are now saying the exact same things exactly that the Pope in Rome is saying. We've come full circle, brothers. Wokeism is neo-ecumenism. And the crazy thing is, I can't tell you how many Roman Catholics have contacted me for help against the subjective insanity. And the great evangelical church is pushing the same ideology as is Rome. So where do we point these people? To the truth, to the light, and the truth will set them free. We may light a flame those that will carry the light of objective truth for future generations. You know, it's time. So I've gone a little bit over here, but let's stand for a moment if you can. Take out your song sheets. And this, let's sing this together before we bring Brother Tom up. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And through this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath will his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. He's just paper. 
That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever.